going to read from Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15, if you'd like to turn to that section. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through to 23. If you're using um, the Bible with just Holy Bible on it, that's on page 833. And on the Bible with the logo on it, that's on 1182. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for giving us your word and we pray that uh, as we all now, us here in the children and kids church as well consider your word that you by your spirit would be opening our minds and our hearts and uh, bringing change to our lives we pray and we ask these things in jesus name amen uh, at our home we are presently having some gardens removed uh, the reason for that is that these gardens have been that window of uh, first put there, they were built up high against the walls of our house, which apparently um, makes life easy for termites uh, to get into the house. We're using an excavator. In fact, uh, yesterday we uh, removed an estimated 30 tonnes of um, soil from uh, just one garden. It's incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? Uh, one of the gardens uh, uh, we couldn't get the excavator into and it had to be cleared out by hand uh, using pick and shovel. Um, sounds easy, <sighs> but it wasn't. <clears throat> I mean, I, I watched the guys doing it. <laughs> and, and the problem was that there was this, it's, part of it's really highly elevated on the wall of the house and on that, on that highest elevated point, there's this plant that was, um, must have been planted there 50 years ago. And it's now this really tall and very um, strong plant growing at the highest point of the garden. And it had to be removed <clears throat> because it's so high, it had to be, have all of its roots removed as well. Uh, roots so thick, so tough so extensive 
that uh, the guys almost had to resort to using a chainsaw just to cut through the roots of this plant. Um, but roots are a good thing, aren't they? I mean, in the right place, they're a good thing uh, because uh, they not only feed the plant, but they keep the plant in place or the tree. Um, deep, strong, healthy roots are a reason why trees just don't topple over in a storm. That's a good thing, isn't it? That's a very good thing. And this is actually a reasonably good image of um, what we need in the Christian life. Uh, the commitment which you and I should have towards the gospel of Jesus. Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul uses this very imagery in Colossians, not in today's passage, but in chapter 2, when he urges the Colossian Christians to be rooted and built up in Christ Jesus as Lord. So if you are rooted in Christ Jesus, what's that going to mean? What's that going to look like? Well, I guess it means that um, you're going to be fed and you're going to be strengthened by Christ. But it also means that you're not moving, that you're staying in place, that you're not shifting away from the gospel, which can happen. Think about it this way. Um, we might <clears throat> be people who start out in the Christian life with a very um, clear understanding of the gospel and a seemingly unmovable commitment to the truth of the gospel and yet as we go through life we can be tempted to shift we can be tempted to shift in our commitment to the gospel it can happen in a whole stack of different ways um, for example uh, this is one of the common ways that we may shift in terms of our commitment to the gospel uh, when the truths of the gospel make us unpopular uh, so, in order to uh, avoid unpopularity, we might find ourselves just playing down, just going a bit soft on some of the more challenging truths of the gospel, truths such as sin and judgment and repentance. Um, and so, we, we therefore shift away from the gospel itself. Another temptation, it's the one that uh, Colossians addresses, the temptation to seek after a relationship with God which somehow seems more complete um, than what we already have in the gospel. And that's the more subtle shift because it, it doesn't mean taking away from the gospel, it means adding to the gospel. And so it's a little bit harder to see when it's happening sometimes. Now, when Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, uh, it was a good news story because he was actually grateful that they were standing firm in the gospel. They were standing firm, which is great. However, he was uh, concerned about some false teaching, which uh, was perhaps on the periphery of church life, maybe entering into church life, but it was a false teaching which would threaten their stability, teaching which, if it gained a foothold, um, could cause the Colossian Christians to shift away from their firm commitment to the gospel. 
And in essence, as we'll see in a couple of weeks' time uh, when we get deeper into chapter 2, it was teaching which could lure them into believing that the gospel of Jesus is great, but it's not quite enough. I mean, they would say that Christ is the beginning and you need Christ, but if you want to be the complete Christian, then you need something extra as well. Uh, and uh, in Colossae, it seemed to be the, um, a special experience, a special spiritual experience, perhaps uh, connected with somehow worshipping angels. Uh, or, uh, and we also see this in Colossians, that to be truly spiritual, you not only have to put your trust in Christ, but you have to deprive your body of uh, certain good things which are gifts from God. If you deprive yourself of things, then you'll somehow be more spiritual. Now, Paul needs to deal with this, uh, but before he does, in our passage today, he lays the groundwork for what will follow. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, which Alyssa read to us earlier on, and you might want to have open in your Bibles, Paul reminds the Colossians of two foundational truths. Firstly, the truth of who Christ is, and secondly, the truth of what he has already done for us. So let's take those in turn, shall we? First of all, who is Christ? Now, um, as you're aware, people have all sorts of different views about who Jesus is. Um, Apparently... Um, There are some people who even believe that Jesus is just a myth. Uh, There was a... McCrindle Research did a survey of a 1,000 Australians back in 2015 and a whopping 13% of Aussies who were interviewed claimed that they believed that Jesus never lived, that he was just a myth. It sounds... You know, that's hard to fathom, isn't it? But I've got to tell you, there are some academics, some theologians who believe the same thing that there was some, maybe have been some figure back there in history that the gospel stories are vaguely based on, but basically it's, it's a myth. So that's one view, it's not very common. Um, more commonly, people think of Jesus as being a good man, a good bloke, um, a great moral teacher, someone who gave the world uh, the, the highest standard of moral teaching, um, such as the, the golden rule, you know, it, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and so on. And it's this kind of thinking about Jesus being a moral teacher that can very easily slide into the view that um, Jesus is really just the, the founder of a great world religion, um, like Muhammad, or like Buddha, or whatever. Now these are just some common views but in Colossians chapter 1 Paul makes astonishing claims about Jesus. Pick it up at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created 
by him and for him. Now, Colossae was a very pagan city. It was a city which was full of um, idols, false gods and, and so on. And in, for Christians living in Colossae, the, the great temptation for them would have been to, to give too much credit to other so-called spiritual powers. I think here in Port Macquarie it's a bit different to that, isn't it? I mean, we're a, a bit of a mix at least, that there are some people in Port Macquarie who would, um, <clears throat> would be into alternative spiritualities. Um, certainly that's the case. Um, but there are many people, perhaps even, I guess, even more, more so, there are people who would just give very little attention or very little credit to any spiritual power at all. We live a very, in a very materialistic um, society and culture where people live as if God just doesn't exist. And yet, as we look at our world and our universe, um, we see the evidence for a designer all around us, don't we? <clears throat> I've, um, our house is being repaired because of termite damage. And so, uh, lately I've been reading up on termites, um, <clears throat> about how they... How these, how these guys organise their colonies and how they operate. It's called knowing your enemy. I've, I've officially declared war on termites. It's been really interesting. I was so... Uh, because our house has been filled with tradesmen for the last month or so and I was talking to a couple of the, um, the plumbers and asking, well, how did this happen? And I said, oh, let me tell you how termites work. And I uh, said, so, you know, there's different types of termites in any termite colony. There's the king and the queen. Now, their function is just to reproduce hundreds of thousands of, you know, babies. Great maternity ward section that they have there. And, and then some of those ones that they produce, they're, they're, they're scouts. These are the termites that have got wings that fly around. And their job is to scout out for new sources of, um, of timber and to report back to home base. And then there are the workers. Uh, and these are the, um, these are the guys that, that they, they do all the hard yakka. They, they build these mud tunnels um, to, the, to the source of the timber and then they build this whole network of tunnels, this infrastructure that they get in place. And then they bring in more workers who uh, come through the tunnels and they eat up all of the timber and they take it back to the nest and, uh, well, they excrete and the others eat all of the great nutrients from... <laughs> then there's the military. These are the termites that have... They're fierce, they're ferocious. I've seen them. They've got claws. And they are there to protect the tunnels and to protect the workers and to protect the colony from uh, outsiders, other insects who want to eat termites because they are so juicy. They're filled with all the good nutrients from the timber. And all of this is to keep the ecosystem sort of functioning so the timber keeps on decomposing in the forest, fertilise... And these tradies, these plumbers, they're going, wow, that's amazing. I said, guys... This is why I believe in a designer. 
I said, if you were, if we were to have a human operation functioning like that, that would require military precision, great organisational skills, a, an amazing maternity ward at the hospital. <laughs> and these tradies are saying, yeah, there must be a designer. <laughs> and friends, this is just termites. It's not to say anything about the, the moons and the planets and the and the stars that fill our galaxy and the multiple galaxies and the universe and everything is it's hard to believe that there is no god it's hard to believe the evidence for god is all around us you just need to open your eyes and yet we cannot see god can we because god is spirit god is invisible. We can know about God through observing the creation, but how can we get to know him personally? Well, God has done something amazing. God has, has revealed himself. God has connected with us. God has communicated with us in the most incredible way. And that is by becoming one of us. When Paul says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, he doesn't mean that Jesus is like a photograph or like a replica, a model. You know, it's not like when I say that you know my daughter is a spitting image of my wife, which thankfully she is. Um, <clears throat> someone once met, said to me, "Scott, you didn't have much say in the gene pool, did you?" <laughs> I'm grateful for that. <laughs> It's not like that. It's not like saying that the son is like a photograph of the father. No, it's, it's much more than that, much, much more. Paul's ex Paul expands on this in verse 19 by saying, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Did you see that? All his fullness. In chapter 2, verse 9, uh, Paul says, For in Christ... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now notice the repetition. He could have said, he could have said, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. He says, all his fullness. It's repetition. He doesn't need to say all of his fullness, but he says it in case we don't get it. And that is that there is nothing about God which is not in Christ. In verse 15, Paul goes on to describe him as being the firstborn over all of creation. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that um, Christ is firstborn uh, in the sense that Christ was somehow the first one created by God the Father. That's what it means. You know, as if there was a time in history when Christ was not, uh, that he's just a superior spiritual being, but he's not quite God, uh, as the Jehovah's Witnesses um, uh, mischievously and uh, erroneously teach. Now, in verse 16... All things, all things, 
were created by him and for him. That is, with the Father and the Spirit, he is the creator. But he's, all things are, are created for him because just like the firstborn son in any biblical family, Jesus is the heir, Jesus is the inheritor of all that there is. In fact, if he is the creator and the heir, then Jesus really is at the centre of the universe, isn't he? Without him, it would all stop. It would cease to function. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That is, not only is he the one who has created all things, but he's actually the author of the new creation as well. <laughs> so that in everything, says Paul, he might have the supremacy. Jesus is supreme. And yet, there is a created being, uh, which is at the pinnacle of God's creation and it's not Jesus because Jesus was not created it's actually us it's you and me it's men and women um, I mean like other animals we live we think we breathe we we work and so on but what makes us different is that we have a consciousness of God I don't think those termites as well organized as they are give any thought beyond munching up timber <laughs> and producing others. But we do. We have a consciousness of God. It's, it's how we're wired. It's how God has made us because God has made us special to be in relationship with himself, to know him, to love him, and to live for him to obey him. That's what we've been made for. And the problem is that that's, that's not how we live. Uh, in verse 21, um, Paul reminds the Colossians of what they once were. Have a look at that, verse 21. He says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Have you ever felt alienated from someone? Out of relationship? It's hard, isn't it? You know what it's like. It, you might be walking down the street and you see that person heading towards you and suddenly your heart beat starts to get faster. Your blood pressure rises because... And you, you feel like crossing the road just so you can avoid them because you know there's a barrier between you and, and that person. And in our natural state, that's what it's like between us and God. There is a barrier between us and our Creator. Um, we don't live the way that God intended us to live. At one glance at the daily news tells us that, doesn't it? When we see all of the, 
the violence and the corruption and the evil that's in the world, but it's not just that. We don't need to look out there at others. Because the truth is that no matter how good, no matter how moral we may or may not be, there's none of us who puts God first in our lives. There's none of us who lives with God as centre of our existence. We just don't love him and obey him as we should. Instead, we live with ourselves as the centre of our own little universe. Therefore, we are alienated from God and we face his judgment. That's the bad news. The good news is that that's what we once were, but not now. For what is it that God has done for us in Christ? Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That's incredible when you think about it. Here, Paul's using the language of the courtroom. And Paul's claim is on that great day of judgment that uh, we who were alienated from God because of our sin can now stand before the judge. And we can stand before the judge with a clean record, with no blemish free from accusation not because of who we are but because of what Christ, of who Christ is and what he's done for us that we can now be reconciled and at peace with God because when Jesus friends when he hung and bled and died on the cross this wasn't the death of a some great moral teacher from the past this wasn't the death even of a guy who just founded a great world of religion that happened to keep on going. It certainly wasn't the death of someone who was a myth. No, this was the death of the one through whom and for whom all things in the universe have been made. This is the death of the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, the one who is supreme over all of creation. And he died for us. Because on the cross, the penalty for all of our sin, which we deserved, was poured out on him instead. So, how sufficient do you think Christ's death is to pay for sin? How sufficient, given who he is? Is his death sufficient to pay for your sin to bring you back into relationship with god is his death sufficient to pay for the sins of all people who turn to him and trusting him indeed any person who trusts in jesus and turns back to god his death is more than enough to pay for what we owed God. And so, therefore, 
<clears throat> why, why on earth would anyone ever dream of shifting away from this good news? As if Christ is somehow not enough. Uh, as if they somehow need to you know, deprive themselves of some foods or some drinks or perform such religious festivals in order to somehow make up for what was lacking in Christ. Why would anyone think that they need some extra, some new, some different and better special mystical experience in order to complete the job? Why? Well, perhaps it's because we just don't grasp the supremacy of Christ. Not dealing with the issue of who he actually is. And therefore we're not grasping the sufficiency of his death. And we're not grasping the, the spiritual experience that we've already received in him. No longer alienated. We are now reconciled to our God forever. This is good news, isn't it? It's the best news. And this is the gospel which in verse 23, Paul had become a servant of. In verse 23, he says, this is what you have if, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved, not shifting from the hope that is held out in the gospel. And this is the gospel that you heard and which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. What's he saying? There is no other gospel. There is no better news than this. And this gospel is for everyone. It's for Jew, it's for Greek, it's for rich or poor, it's for young, it's for old, it's for people that have lived yeah, amazingly moral lives but don't live for God and it's for those who live terrible lives. It's for every creature under heaven, says Paul, no matter who you are or how you've lived or what you've done. You can be forgiven by turning to Jesus and trusting that his death is enough to pay for your sin. You can be reconciled. You can be at peace with your creator forever. So I just want to ask you, therefore, have you done that? Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, coming along to church is one thing. Being born into a Christian family or having friends. That bring, but have you actually personally put your trust in Jesus? That his death has paid for your sin. Have you made a commitment to turning your life over to loving and serving him because of what he's done for you? Um, if not, then um, today would be a good day to do so. But if you have trusted in Jesus, then the message here is to stand firm and to be on guard uh, against anyone who wants us to believe that Jesus is somehow not enough 
that there's more to the complete Christian experience than just trusting in Christ. There is no more. We have it all in Jesus. And it's this gospel, says Paul, in which we need to be established and firm. Like a tree with its roots sunk deeply into the ground, not shifting, not bending, not going anywhere. Because, friends, there is simply no better place to go than to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are just amazed at um, who Jesus is and what you have done for us in his death on the cross. May the gospel be our satisfaction, our joy and our hope. Uh, may we grasp just something more of how long and wide and deep and high is your love for us in Christ Jesus, that we would not waver, but that we would be firmly grounded and built up in him all our days. Amen. Scott, the um, gospel truth is truly amazing and we're going to sing Jesus, thank you.